Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February 26, 2015, and this is episode 1527 of the Survival Podcast. And I got kind of an impromptu one today. Um, we did a show last week with Kevin Hauser on growing apples in hot climates, and we threw around some tech terminology like bench grafting and, you know, M111 rootstock and stuff like that. And I, I realized when getting a comment from one particular listener, but several others as well, that it's kind of like, well, doing a show on financial stuff and, and throwing around words like um, naked call, right, collaring a trade, without actually doing a show first that explains, well, what the hell does that mean? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about tree propagation and specifically three different methods um i'm going to call it from seed via grafting and via rooting and there's actually a lot of ways to do each of those and i'm not going to you know try to do this completely in depth if you're experienced with this stuff you're going to be like man he's leaving a lot of stuff out today but my intention today is kind of an introduction to all of the components that go into making one tree into more trees And a lot of this stuff also works with bushes and shrubs as well. In fact, a lot of it will even work with, like, herbs. You can graft herbs. It can be done. Not all of them, but a lot of stuff can be grafted. Do you know people graft tomatoes? Seriously. People graft tomatoes. Some people even graft tomatoes onto potatoes. Just saying. You'll learn about all kinds of cool stuff like that today. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, the original, the first survival podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Royal. Safe Castle Royal was a company going, Jack, we want to sponsor the show when they were like, oh, I don't know, like 25 people listening. And I, I was like, I, I, I can't take your money, man. I, I can't give you a return yet. Let's... Let's see how this goes, and let's see if we can make something out of it. About six months into the show, seven months-ish, you know, we had a few thousand listeners, and I started up the member support brigade, and, and I said to, to Vic over at Safe Castle, yeah, man, let, let's make this happen. Let's see if we can put something together. We built the entire sponsorship program around Safe Castle as our first sponsor. So the way that we handle things, which honestly we haven't had to do in a long time because we don't lose sponsors, but every new sponsor that comes in, they go to the moderators on the forum who like rip them to shreds for 48 hours. And if they find that they're not taking care of their customers or something like that, then I don't take them. And uh, that was all built around Safe Castle. They've got everything you need for your preps. Check them out today. Safe Castle Royal. Uh, I have to tell you, uh, when it comes to loyalty from a sponsor, they're all loyal. But these guys, from day one, literally before we had sponsors, they wanted to be one, and they're still here. Think of that when you're deciding where to get your next stuff for your preps. Next up today, you know, the one thing you're not going to get at Safe Castle's ammo, I don't sell ammo. Uh, but you can get it at BulkAmmo.com. Ship to your door so fast your head will snap around. Like, I just ordered that. How did, did that, did those, is Amazon delivering it with those helicopter things or what? It's not quite that fast, but it's really, really, really fast at a really good price, and it's all the ammo you're looking for in bulk. When I get my ammo in bulk, and I don't want to leave the house to do it, I get it from bulk ammo. You should, too. Give them a shot to earn your business, and you'll see why at bulkammo.com. 
Jotcom. Uh, next up today, let us take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1527. I have the Sack of Rome, which I wanted to read to you. I had King Henry VIII wants a divorce, which I sort of wanted to read to you. And then I have a really short one that I'm going to read to you because I think it's just the kind of thing that people, like, remember. Like, the next time you hear it, you'll be like, oh, I know where that came from. You might even be like uh, Cliff Clavin in Cheers, you know, volunteering that uh, Jeopardy-level trivia information. Some of them really care, but it might still be fun to do over a beer. How about the word eavesdropper? It, it has its origins around the year 1527. In a word, eavesdropper. That drip, drip, drip is the sound of moisture from the roof falling from the eaves and becomes associated with, quote, drips, end quote, hanging around the window. People would share the latest gossip or hear conversation at the window, so they began to be called eavesdroppers at this time. My take by Alex Strug, the Japanese have a similar idea of listening to the gate, the kanji symbol for eavesdropping, is a picture with two gate doors and an ear in the center. So now you know. My take by Jack Spirico. I don't really have one, except I think that was kind of cool. Next up, before we get into the main topic of today's show, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you help support my show. With a whopping 18.3 cents an episode, you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. I do offer a service discount to all existing, retired, and prior service members of the United States military, the Peace Corps, law enforcement officers, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. If you qualify for that discount before, not after you join, email me, put service discount TSPC in the subject line, tell me about your service in one sentence or less. And I will get back to you with the discount code. Do that again before, not after you join. All right. Before I get into today's show, I want to do something I don't usually do midweek shows. I want to talk about something political slash mainstream media that you need to be aware of. And I don't really have any solutions for you as what to do about it because um, it's more of a Jack was right and doesn't want to be type of thing. There's a concept out there being floated around right now called net neutrality. And for years and years, it's been batted around whether or not Congress should vote on it and pass a law to uh, to create it. And Republicans, to their credit, did a pretty good job of basically saying, yeah, don't try that because it ain't going to happen. And the votes weren't there. You need to get it through both houses and then to the president's desk. So uh, it didn't go. And, of course, the Republicans were bashes supporting big business and all. And, and what they were actually doing is, at least for a time, holding the line or pretending to. Under net neutrality, which is the, the name doesn't mean, you know, it's one of those things where you, Nick Ferguson, who I should have doing the show today with me, often says, I don't think that word means what you think it means. So net neutrality is the furthest thing in the world from it. What it effectively does is take the Internet, which is a free and open public platform, and turn it into a government-regulated utility. So it should be called Government-Regulated Utility Internet Act. Okay, that's what it should be called. Because that's what it is. That's what it is. And it's being done under the auspices of, do you know some of those big evil companies with internet throttle your service? You know, Comcast doesn't like what Netflix is doing. They just slow it down when you're viewing Netflix. Is that true? I think in some instances it has been true. I think it has. I think if the government really wanted to do something about it, there's laws in place like antitrust laws, etc. that could be used to prevent that type of behavior. Right, But this is the story. And the average person is not switched on enough to understand that just because 
your Netflix experience was interrupted the other night doesn't necessarily mean that your provider throttled them because it was Netflix. They might have throttled them because there was a big bandwidth bottleneck and they shit-canned everybody that was on heavy draw and you had to reboot or something to get it to work again. That could be what happened. Or they could have screwed you. Yes, either way. Let's just assume that every time something doesn't work the way you want it to with a, a heavy download of files or uh, streaming media that your company, your cable company or your internet provider is screwing. Let's just assume that's the case. All right. So that's your problem now. That sometimes the cable provider, internet provider that you've chosen screws you with performance for the service you pay somewhere between $15 and $60 a month for on average. Because, no, you don't get to include your cable charges and your phone charge. No, your, your internet charge for the average person, 15 to 60 bucks a month. So occasionally they don't give you what you paid for, if you want to see it that way, because you don't have what's called a service level agreement. Go get yourself an SLA, a service level agreement, on something like a T1. You'll pay a couple hundred to $400 a month for that in most areas, and you will get 100% performance. And you will find that 1.45 megabits brings you a shitload of performance even though it doesn't seem sometimes like 60 megabits does, because you'll learn the difference between dedicated and, and shared services. See, you have shared services with lots of other people. A T1 is a dedicated line. It may not go as fast, but you can go as fast as it'll let you go all the time. All right, And you can stream the shit out of Netflix on a T1. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. I know because this is my old business. So, see, I'm actually more qualified to make a decision about this than the people uh, in the FCC and Congress who are who are doing it, and, and and they don't know any of this shit. I'm just saying. So, going back on this, I want you to think about this. Your problem right now is that you might get screwed from time to time with performance on a service you pay $15 to $60 for. The solution is to take a free and open platform like the Internet that anybody can do anything they want with it with no government regulations over it whatsoever. The last domain of freedom for information and services like you receive every day from me. I'm just saying. They might say, Jack, you can't say shit anymore. We're not FCC regulating you. You can't say the words George Carlin said or whatever. Some of you might be happy about that. But if you don't like that I say shit, here's my solution. There's a little X. When you get to my site, click it. It'll go away. All right? That's how I've run my show because of free freaking dumb. Got it? Okay? This changes all of that. So in order to supposedly be sure that Comcast, for instance, or AT&T, for instance, can't screw you by throttling your bandwidth, you're going to take the great big freedom of the Internet and give oversight and regulation of it to the federal freaking government and call it net neutrality. And let me tell you what's happening right now. The FCC has a proposal for it. You want to read it? You can't. You can't read it. It will not be made public until after the FCC votes on it. And then they will present it as new regulation. And the only way to stop it, the only way to stop it would be executive action from the president. Not going to happen because he thinks this is a great idea. Or for your Republican majority in the Congress, the Senate and the House, to say, no way, no how, no chance, we promised we would not let this happen, to step up and pass a law opposing it, and put it on the president's desk, and maybe tie a bunch of shit to it that he really wants, and that we're not, you know, that he's probably going to get anyway, but he can get it all in one little package, and bait him into signing it, or 
say, you know what, now you don't get that because you vetoed it, and say, hey, we need this to go away, and, and, and this is another example of why. But you know what your Republican leadership has said? Not going to happen. We're not going to do shit. They've sold you out again. They've sold you out again. America, your Republican majority that was so, some of you were so angry with me for not voting in election, an election last time around, where nothing I would have voted for would have changed anything. Because by the way, the Republicans in my districts and all the places I could have voted for one of them, one by the lowest majority got 68% of the vote. The lowest. The majority of Republicans running where I would have voted received in, 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 at around 80% of the vote. So nothing I was, but my point was, it's not going to change anything, and none of these people are going to actually do what they say anyway. One of the most staunch opponents, John Cornyn from the great state of Texas, doesn't seem to care that this is happening. He's for years said this is terrible. He doesn't believe in it. It's horrible. It's like Obamacare for the Internet. He's right, but now that it's going to happen, what's the great senator going to do? Jack Diddley, F all. And that's happening in front of you right now, America. Um, let's call Congress and stop it. Go for it. Wish you well. Hope it works. Um, I think my point is stop believing that a rigged game isn't rigged, America. Start focusing on your own life. And if, if you ever really want to change things politically in this country, voting for the lesser of two evils isn't going to get it done. That's my thoughts. Anyway, happier things. Let's get into making more trees. At least there's nothing that really prevents us from, well, some trees in some states, yeah, but overall we can make as many trees as we want. This is going to be kind of a shorter show than, than they typically go, uh, probably right at an hour and we'll be done, because uh, I'm going to stay very basic with this so that you have an understanding of what's possible and you're on the right path toward investigating and self-directed learning so that you can learn to do these things, or if you want to learn how to do it all, And, and know exactly what to do and what not to do, take Nick Ferguson's plant propagation course over at permaethos.com. Uh, we just added four hours of phone call, uh, conference calls, where we had all the students that had taken the course up to this point were able to call in on Saturday and Sunday. Nick and I worked all day Saturday and Sunday. And this is one of the things we did. And we took calls on business and the, the techniques themselves on just like everything in the course and added all that material and gave it to all the students for free. And if you become a student now, you get all that for free. I'm just saying. Um, and more is coming. We did a lot of video here on pruning and scionwood collection that Nick is going to be editing and that will get added. And so this is all stuff that like when we sold the course, we said, here's what you get. We gave you what you got. And then we added these things and we have more things that we're planning and then we're working on an advanced course. So, If, if you want more than you hear today, that's one way to get it. And you can do a lot of this stuff with Google and YouTube. Just with Nick, you know the source. Anyway, so there's really three primary ways to propagate trees. And right now, people that know a lot about this are going, whoa, come on. There's a lot more than that. There is, but they're all, to me, forms of one of these three. And those three are from seed, from grafting, and from rooting. And there's a lot of ways to graft, and there's a lot of ways to root, and there's a lot of different techniques necessary to get certain seeds to, to you know, germinate. But in the end, every method of making one tree into more trees that I know of anyway, that doesn't involve maybe a Petri dish um, and some, some guy in a lab, uh, is, is from one of those three. We either grow it from seed, we graft it onto something else, 
or we cre we take a piece of material and do something to make it root so that it can support itself. Okay, so let's start out with from seed. What how, you know? How does this work? What are the different things you need to know about if you're going to do things from seed? What are the advantages and disadvantages? The primary disadvantage that people see from seed is that well, it takes longer for the tree to get big enough to give me something back, and that's largely incorrect. And the reason it's largely incorrect is it doesn't really take any longer. You just get to see the whole process. If you buy a grafted tree, and we'll get into this in a minute, but somebody had to grow the rootstock and then graft the piece onto the rootstock and then probably grow the tree for a year or two before they sold it to you. So it isn't that it actually takes that much longer for a seed tree to produce than a grafted tree. It's that someone else has already done the work for you and Because it wasn't grown from seed in place and doesn't have a huge root system at three years old, it can be somehow pulled up out of the ground and, and, and put in a pot or done bare root and sent to you. So you get to skip some of the time. Now, that said, no matter what you do, the tree kind of goes through a bit of a reboot and, and to, to different levels when it's disrupted and moved. Right. So uh, your seedling trees can often gain a year... At, at, at about the five-year mark over some of these other methods, especially if you've acquired it from halfway across the country and the tree had to go through all this stress to get there. But the, the issue with seed is some things just don't produce what you're looking for from a seed. Apples are a great example. When you take an apple seed and plant it in the ground, you never know what you're going to get. And if you just started collecting seeds from every apple you could get your hands on from the store, from you know Honeycrisp, Granny Smith, uh, Fuji's, you name it, all the generic apples that we are uh, the uh, the name variety apples that we eat, you could grow thousands and thousands of trees for next to nothing. You could plant one and get the next new awesome super duper apple, but the law of averages is about ten. Thousand seeds have to be planted to get one that's distinct, unique, and special enough that someone would say, this apple is worthy of adoration and propagation. And most of our apples that we have today came from just that. Uh, they weren't purposeful cross-pollinations and controls and stuff like that. A tremendous number of apples that, that came out of America came from our Uh, our early years as a nation, as the nation was settled and people would go and homestead 40, 50 acres, they'd settle aside, uh, you know, several acres for an orchard. And their primary plant that we planted all over this country, north, south, east, and west, was the apple because it does so many things for us. We can use it to make vinegar. We can use it for cider. We can use it for sweetening. We can eat it. We can cook with it. We can dry it. It'll store, some varieties will store really a long time in a cellar as a whole apple. Once they're dried, they'll store for a lot longer. Um, there's just, we can make apple butter. I mean, it's just this, this incredible fruit that does all these things. The problem is when you plant a seed, you just don't know what you're going to get. And you could get anything from a little hard crab apple looking tart thing that'd make your mouth pucker to something pretty reasonable. And usually you actually get, when you're planting seed from an already selected variety, something usable, but not something that like you would really be excited about. Okay, So one of the problems with seed is you might not get what you're looking for. If you plant Bartlett pear seeds, you get pretty decent pears. 
But you don't get a pure Bartlett that's really that supery great, so it makes more sense to, let's say, plant a Bartlett pear from seed and then graft onto it, which we'll get to in a minute. So the, the problem with seed is, is generally the biggest problem is repeatability. Some things repeat really well, some things repeat sort of kind of okay, and some things reproduce, you know, totally different from the stock. And then there's variations within variations. So Antonovoka apple is a very ancient apple that came out of Kazakhstan into to Russia and was propagated for years and years by seed in Russia. And if you buy that seed or get a hold of that seed and plant it, you get something very close to the parent. And you can plant a hundred of them and you get a hundred very similar trees. So it works well. But then if you try to do that with a Granny Smith, who knows what you're going to get. And where'd Granny Smith come from? A real granny in Australia that had some, some uh, crab apple that she had peeled and done some stuff with in cord and used for cooking a pie or something and threw it away. And one of the seeds caught and grew and it became the Granny Smith. And her last name was Smith. I don't remember her first name, but she was a granny named Smith. So it became the Granny Smith apple out of Australia from a discarded crab apple. So she planted one by accident and got a home run. An apple that almost everybody in the world has eaten and loves and has seen and knows about. And you could go plant 10,000 and get maybe one or three or 10 or zero. That's the, the, now the upside of seed. When I plant a seed in the ground, And that tree produces a taproot from that seed. I get the strongest, most penetrating, most amazing taproot that's possible under any circumstances. And no matter how good of a propagator I am with any other method, it is never the same as if that seed was planted where it's going to grow. And it will never be the same again. It will never be as strong. It will never be as resilient. It will never be what it could have been. But it also might grow something that's not quite what I'm looking for. Or in the words of Ron White, let me tell you what I'm looking for in an effing tree, and this ain't it, right? Um, <laughs> some of you know that gag. But that's kind of your you'll deal with, with, with from seed. And then the other thing is, sometimes it's so much resilience from that, it's very resistant to diseases. But, for instance, apples have a whole list of diseases that can in, 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 afflict them. And many times, you know, seed-grown uh, apples are not resistant to certain things like scab and fire blight and what have you. Or some other, you know, specific root stocks are more resistant. So we'll get to that in a minute. So there might be a lack of disease resistance when we go from seed, and sometimes there might be an increase. It all depends on the individual plant. Okay. And again, some things are pretty reliable. You can grow peach trees from seed. You don't know what you're going to get exactly, but you're going to get a pretty damn good peach nine times out of ten. You can grow it from an apple, right? You're going to get something sort of kind of maybe okay 9,000 times out of 10,000 times, but it's not going to be something you really want to like polish off on your arm and ch chow into, right? It might be a good cider apple or a vinegar apple or uh, an apple to feed to livestock or whatever. And it might be an edible apple, but nothing you would write home about. A thousand times, you know, like nine, 999 times out of that, you're going to get an apple so bad, you don't even know what to do with it. And then one time out of 10,000, you get something really great. So it It varies like that. Now, let's talk about grafting. Grafting is simply where we take something. Let's say I have, I, I have like, for instance, I have a red globe peach uh, in a little mini micro food forest we planted last year. And that peach is fantastic. 
Now, I'm not saying if you grow a red, a red glow peach in North Carolina, it's going to be fantastic. It might be. I don't know. But in this climate, that peach is fantastic. I'm not even a huge fan of peaches. I have most of them planted for my wife. That thing was like peach crack candy. It was so good. I have a tree in between my garage and my outbuilding that was a great big peach tree. And it produced these great big horrible yellow peaches. They didn't, they weren't horrible, but they weren't good. Okay. They were just, ugh. and it, it produced so late in the season that every pest that could possibly bother a peach was at full capacity. So peaches generally, you know, you're, they're kind of an early producer compared to a lot of other fruits where this thing is producing at a point that, you know, you're picking mid season to, early, late season apples by the time this thing's up and ripe and going on. So it just attracts every pest you could possibly have, and it's the, the taste is just not there. So we look at this tree, and we realize the reason that's the case is there was a peach tree there of some known variety, and it died. But the rootstock that that was grafted to came up and formed a whole new giant tree. And it was the rootstock, probably Lovell, which is a very common rootstock for peaches, that was producing these big honking yellow peaches. They were big. They just sucked. So I took the chainsaw to it, and I left a few uh, suckers coming up off the main frame. And what I'm going to do, I don't know if I'll do it today because it's freezing cold and snowing again, I'm going to go out there with my brand new cool grafting tool and some tree wonder sealant and some grafting tape. And I'm going to take a couple pieces off my red globe and I'm going to go graft them on to that peach stump where those suckers come up and see if one or two of them will take and then train them into a new tree that's already sitting on this huge rootstock that's been there for years and get a brand new tree from grafting and that's what grafting is grafting is simply taking material from one plant and cutting it in such a way that it fits together think of it like a key into a lock and then having that be like an amputation you've put back onto a patient and sealing it up so that the wound can heal and over time the graft will grow together and if it's done well a lot of grafts are very hard to see where exactly was this graft you know five ten years down the road usually for quite a few years you'd be like there's the graft and that's good and we'll talk about that in a second as well but that's grafting it's just taking two pieces of material and putting them together and i'll save why you want to do that for when we get into rootstocks, because that's probably the better time to have that discussion. So then the third method of producing new trees is rooting. And rooting, there's a lot of ways to do it, but the three most common are softwoods, hardwoods, and something called layering. So a softwood cutting is just what it sounds like. You're taking a cutting from the parent plant when it's soft still, but not too soft. You don't want like this wimpy little new growth green that just came up that's like so soft, you know, you blow on it and it folds over. And each plant that you might take a cutting from probably has like an optimum time when you're going to have your highest percentage of chance of success by taking that cutting and dipping it in something called rooting hormone, and then putting it into a very humid environment to keep the leaves moist so that they don't transpire too fast and wilt. 
Okay? And transpiration is the moisture comes up the stem of the plant into the leaves and escapes into the atmosphere. And when a, when a plant stresses, it starts sucking water and it starts transpiring really, really fast. So we have to do something to keep that from happening. We can do things like some cuttings. You just simply put them into uh, some moist soil. And then you maybe put a bag over them. And as the soil evaporates water into the atmosphere, it's contained by the bag. And you keep it in a nice, cool, shady place. I wouldn't say cool, warm, but not hot. And your cuttings will root. And I've seen people do this. You take a little, like a Tupperware box, stick a whole bunch of little softwood cuttings in it, moist soil, put a bag over it, and stick it in the shade in a forest somewhere. Just leave it at natural temperatures. Come back weeks later, half of them are dead maybe. Half of them took. Little roots on them. They can now be grown out into a new plant. You can do that with some trees. I'm going to talk about hardwoods next and layering before I talk about... Because the same should you rule applies to all three. The next one is hardwoods. Hardwoods are exactly what they sound like. We're taking the cutting when it's hardened off and it's dormant. Okay? So... This, but it, it needs to be that new growth too. So that, that softwood cutting you might take in June off a plant. Now we're in October, November. The leaves have fallen off. The tree has gone dormant. And we cut that off. And now it's got a wound. But that wound will callous over and heal while it's dormant. And we just stick that into moist soil of some kind. We don't have to worry about transpiration. We can use a rooting hormone, but usually nobody does. And it's probably not likely to do that much because the thing's going to be dormant for a long time and the effect of that's going to wear off anyway. And we put that somewhere, and a lot of times we just stick those in the ground somewhere, and we're going to dig them up later if they take. And when spring comes, the little buds that are on there open up, leaves come out, and they start to photosynthesize. And it's pulling all of the moisture it can from the ground to be able to survive through what's called the cambium. And that's the living layer of green between the bark and the trunk. So if you take a stick and cut it in half and look at it, you'll see multiple layers. You'll see three, three primary layers. You'll see the center, you'll see the bark, and then you'll see this living layer. That's where everything happens. It goes up through that, that little tiny thin layer of cambium. And... It's pulling through there, and it says, I need more, so it naturally, as a, as a survival mechanism, begins to form roots where it's in contact with the soil. That cutting takes, and you can leave it grow right where it is if that's where you want it, or you can dig it up, pot it up, grow it out, whatever, put it somewhere else. But the softwood and the hardwood cuttings at that stage, when they've just started root, they're very fragile. They need a lot, most of them. Some things are ridiculously tough. Goji cuttings, once they're rooted, you can almost put them anywhere. And as long as they're not sitting down in the middle of the scorching desert, they grow. Uh, but most stuff needs a little bit of love at that point. And you grow it into a bigger plant before you would sell it off or plant it out in the open you know, wilderness, so to speak. The last one is layering. Layering is just a form of rooting that doesn't involve removing the thing from the plant. So with layering, we would do something like we would dig a trench next to a tree with a big, long, green stem whip on it, right? And then we bend that green stem off that plant down to the ground, and we put dirt over top of it, but we leave some of the 
the the the vertical you know leaves branches etc coming up maybe we weight it down with some rocks but we cover it with dirt and we wait and at some point you see all this these new growth coming off of this piece that's in the ground take the rocks away and pull the dirt back and lo and behold there's roots we might get one cutting or we might get 20 off of a layer like that it all depends And we dig those up, and now we have new plants. Okay, There's also something called air layering. This would be where, or air budding, where maybe we take a, a branch off a tree, we take a knife or something, and we wound it a little bit. We treat it maybe with a little bit of rooting hormone. We take something like a plastic bag full of uh, moist soil, and we wrap it around there like a big bandage. And eventually, you'll see roots coming out into that. You need to make sure it stays moist, not wet, but moist. Um, and that's why plastic works good, because it doesn't evaporate very well. And once that is rooted, we just cut it off. And that branch becomes a new plant. So that's air layering. So that's softwood, hardwood, and layering. And to get into the specifics of how, again, next course is the best way to do that. But that's what it means. And those are all methods of rooting. Here's what I've saved to the end. Some plants will do really well on their own roots. Okay? And some will not do so well. Most of your bushes and shrubs do dynamite. Uh, apples will grow, but they'll never quite form the, the tree root the way that you would, you know, want a tree root to form. And they, it, whatever the the mother is susceptible to on its own rootstock, so is the child. So if the the variety is somewhat uh, susceptible to, let's say. Cedar apple rust. Uh, maybe if you'd use something like a Geneva 30, which we'll get to in a second, rootstock that's resistant to that disease, it would inherit some level of resistance from the roots, where now if I just root it off of its mother by any of these methods and plant it, it's likely to be less resistant. It's also going to be what you would call full-sized. right? It's going to go ape. And that could be good, but it's going to give me less control over the final size of the tree. So, rooting stuff, it all depends. Like, plums generally do pretty damn good on their own rootstock. Um, there's a lot that can be gained from grafting on a rootstock, but they'll do okay. Apples, eh, you know, and it all depends. And some stuff's really easy to root with layering and cuttings, and some stuff's tough. Some stuff just roots, man, it just roots. And some stuff, by the time you jacked with it and got it to root, now this little bitty cutting starting to grow... You could have grafted a, a hundred, a hundred trees on a, on a good quality rootstock and got them in the ground somewhere, or done some other techniques, right? So those are what those things are, uh, more so than how to do them. The next one is, well, we've been talking about rootstocks, and that's what created this whole thing. What is a rootstock, and what does it do? A rootstock is simply a, a root with a, a single um, vertical coming up out of it that could become a new tree by itself onto which you attach a plant of the same variety to it, or same species to it. So if I'm grafting apples, I'm not putting an apple, a piece of an apple tree that I've cut off, which we call a scion. A scion is simply a piece from a dormant tree that we're going to put onto that rootstock. I don't put an apple scion onto a, a prunus or a cherry plum style rootstock. It won't work. Right? Instead of cutting an arm off of one human and putting it on another human, Now I've tried to take the, you know, 
I don't know. It's like it's even worse than let's say cutting off a monkey's arm and putting it on a human being. It'd be more like trying to cut uh, the, uh, the the antenna of a giant um, grasshopper off and attach it to your head and have it work. It doesn't work. Let's leave it at that. So um, that's what that's what rootstocks are. They're the roots onto which you graft. And there's three main ways we can create them. Uh, it's it's from seed from what's called stooling, and what's called layering. And there are technically more ways to do this, but these are the most common ones. Stooling and layering aren't much different. So they, they actually kind of sort of work the same way. They're just different in the way the layout goes. So layering I've already talked about. So if I had a tree growing that was a, like, let's say I took an apple root stalk I bought, and I planted it, and I let it grow into a tree. And I had a big, long whip coming off of it. Well, I could layer that into the ground in a trench, like I said. And everywhere a shoot comes up, I can later dig back the soil, dig up those roots, cut it off, and take that shoot that's coming up. And that's my rootstock to graft onto. Stooling is a term that's for basically like layering in the round. So what I do with that is I buy a rootstock and I plant it in the ground. Or I create my own rootstock. We'll talk about that in a second. I plant it in the ground. And it grows up into a, you know, a, a, a one-year-looking tree. And I go cut it really low. And when you cut a tree really low, you've probably seen this, where you've cut a, a tree down you didn't want, and it coppices back, and it sends up tons of shoots, like a bush. Well, as it sends up sh it shoots like a bush, I, I layer something around those shoots, like sawdust or dirt, all the way through that next season. And as I'm doing that, they start sending roots out into it. And then while it's dormant in the early spring of the next season, I pull all that loose soil and sawdust, etc. back, and there's all these roots. I take each sucker and I cut it off the mother right down at the stump, and then I've got a root stock that's the same as the mother. So if I put M111 root stock in the ground and I do this, I can make my own M111 root stock until I'm blue in the face. Now, It's so cheap to buy because it's so easy to make. Many people would just say, if I want to make 100 apple trees this year, instead of putting in 10 of them and doing this and getting 10 off of each one or whatever it is, it would just be easier for me to buy it. You know, at a buck 50, a buck 80, a, a piece of rootstock. But it's up to you. You can make it that way. And you can make it that way just by buying the rootstock you want to propagate and doing this. Okay, here's where it gets a little weird. Some rootstocks are patented. So you can't propagate them for your own use. You certainly can't propagate them for sale. If you buy them, the patent fee is already in there when you've bought it. So now you can propagate it with any open variety plant, sell it off to whatever you want to. It's all, it's all copacetic. Right? So that's, that's just something to be aware of right there. Some rootstocks are open. Patents have worn off. Some newer rootstocks have patents. The other way is from seed. So one of the most common apple rootstocks is Antonovoca, which is this Russian apple I talked about earlier. That makes a decent apple, but it makes a really resilient, full-size rootstock. So what some people will do is they just get a great big grow bed, and they'll put, you know, in a 4x8 bed, 2,000 Antonovoca apple seeds in there. And they'll grow them for a year, or maybe even two, depending on how, how big and bigger they want the rootstocks to be. And then they just take apart the bed open it up, pull all the sand out of it, really loose, friable, sandy soil, and pull all your seedling trees out. 
prune them off, and you've got a rootstock that you can graft another tree onto. Okay? And you've got a full-size rootstock. And we'll talk about that in the functions section next, but that would be another way you could create rootstock. Another way that we can, we can do this is we can actually grow something in place and graft onto it, which I'll talk about under types of grafting. That I've, I've broken into only two, even though there's like hundreds of different ways to do it. But those are my three ways to make more rootstock. Either I layer it, I stool it, which is a type of layering really, or I make it from seed. The most common way rootstocks are propagated by commercial uh, nurseries is with stooling because it's compact. I don't have to be bending stuff over and whatever. I put it in the ground, it starts to grow, I cut it off, you know, and after my second year I'm getting a, I'm getting rootstocks every year off this little mound and I might get 50, 100 off of one. That's why they're cheap and that's why people do it. Even a lot of the Antonovoca apple rootstock for instance, which can be grown from seed, it's it's faster and more productive for people to stool it. And they call it stooling because it's round like a stool. Okay, now, why do we do this? What are the functions? The primary functions are disease resistance, size control, and vigor. Now, I am not a professor at this. I am not Nick Ferguson. There's a lot of other reasons. Vigor might not even be the right word, but it's the one I'm using. So I'm going to go through and explain to you what I mean. Disease resistance is pretty self-explanatory. There are rootstocks that have been developed over time by people that are professionals at developing rootstocks that are specifically disease-resistant. They impart disease resistance to whatever you graft onto it. Sometimes it's resistance, sometimes it's immunity. Understand the difference. Resistance means it's less likely to be infected, or if infected, it's more likely to survive. All right. Immunity means it won't get it. Very few things are disease-immune. Right? Chinese chestnuts are blight-immune. They're also the vector that brought the blight here. Okay, But a lot of... <clears throat> The hybrid chestnuts that we're working on now are disease resistant. Okay, One of the reasons that the roots can impart disease resistance or immunity is some diseases actually enter through the roots. So if the root is immune to a disease that enters through the root, or some of the pests specifically attack roots, like let's say a, a nematode, a, 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 a a pest nematode that attacks roots, if whatever it is attacks the roots and that root system's immune, then the tree's immune. Or if the root system's highly resistant, then the tree's highly resistant. Some things actually attack the tree above grade. Some things do it both. Some things attack above grade, but yet if the roots are strong and, and virile and what have you, the tree's more likely to survive. Some of it's with practices. So a, a very common disease among apples and deadly to them when it, when it gets out of control is fire blight. And the way you control fire blight is if you see any of it, you cut it off the tree, you get rid of it. You get it away from your other apples. All right? Problem is you go out with your shears. Oh, there's a bad looking thing. And you don't know it's fire blight. You prune it off. And then you go around and do some other pruning of other, you know, not so look, happy looking little things. And oh, that limb's just a little long snip. And you spread the fire blight to all your other apple trees. So when you're dealing with fire blight, it's good to know that you would carry some alcohol and wipe your shears down after you uh, touch anything that looks like it. Or uh, what Kevin Hauser does is carry a little little torch, one of those little butane torches uh, around. And when you, when you prune one of that off, you just hit the blades with it and you kill it pretty quick. So 
that's other methods of disease control. So what I'm saying is the rootstock will help you with this issue, but it won't fix it for you. It won't make all diseases go away. But it'll, it'll leave less of a management task for you. And that's, that's the biggest advantage to, to these different rootstocks where they're, with apples, you know, we're talking like Bud9 or M27 or M, EMLA7 and all these things. They all have meanings and I can't tell you what they all mean. You Google them and look them up. Geneva 30, what have you. And I have to, when I'm ordering trees and I don't see something that I want, and there's other rootstocks available. I have to, that's how I find out. I Google it and say, well, what's it equivalent to? The next thing is size control, which is true somewhat. The number one way that you control the size of a tree is through pruning. I'll say that again. The number one way that you control the size of a tree is through pruning. So a lot of semi-dwarf rootstocks produce a tree that's 14 foot tall. Well, if you're doing a backyard nursery where you have you know, a backyard orchard, we have 20 fruit trees in a small backyard, and you want to be able to reach and, and pick all the, the, the pears and apples and plums off of them without getting a ladder out. I don't care if it's semi-dwarf. 14 feet's too big. So you're going to prune that tree really low, and you're going to scaffold it. If you want a six-foot tree, right, then you want it scaffolding at like two and a half feet. Scaffolding's where your first main root, your, your main branches come out of the trunk. So instead of a central leader that comes up to your head, and then you're pruning there and your, your, your branches scaffold about head height, you want them scaffolding down at your belly button or lower. So I, I, there, there's very few rootstocks that were going to dwarf a tree to that height, and they have real drawbacks in that they dwarf a tree that much. So size control is one of those things that is a lot more true of a commercial orchard where I just want all my trees the same height. I don't care if they're 12 or 14 feet tall, really. But I want to know where, how far to space them apart. I want to minimize my pruning and, and my time and my labor. And I want to drive a, a piece of harvesting equipment right down the rows and harvest from two sides at one time. Boom, 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 and done. And I want to come through and, and mass prune for the year in one shot. And I want to walk away and never look at it again. By using a specific rootstock, I have a reasonable approximation of the adult size of the tree. And by using a uniform rootstock for, let's say, all my cherries of a certain variety in a certain sector of my orchard, as a commercial producer, they're all going to get ripe at the same time. They're all going to be the same height. I'm going to have a uniform spacing. That's where that really matters. In your backyard, you probably want the tree to be no bigger than X. Some of you, that means... I'll bring a stepladder out and anything I can reach with long loppers uh, and standing two feet up on the stepladder, that's as high as this tree is going to get. For some of you, it's I'm going to keep this tree where I can always touch the top of it standing on the ground. And it's up to you. And there is no reliable rootstock that's going to do that for you other than a few really novelty things that have the big drawback that I'm about to tell you. So the drawback is... A lack of vigor and, and a dependence on you and on other things like support. So there is a rootstock for apples, for instance, called EMLA27. There's also another rootstock that's about the same uh, from a different lineage called M27. And these will dwarf a tree at 5 to 7 feet tall. Like no matter what you do, that's about how tall that tree is going to get. But how do you think that works? 
Do you think it just says, I refuse to let you grow, and you will obey me because I'm the rootstock, and Monsanto says so. And no, they don't come from Monsanto. I'm just making a point. Like that's That can't be how it works, and it doesn't. It works because the roots will only get so big. And if the roots will only get so big, the above-ground tree can only get so big. And since the roots are so small, if you have a tree on M27 that gets up to about five feet tall, and you have a really good year with apples, you get a windstorm, a tree falls out of the ground. So they have to be permanently staked. Now, why would anybody do such a thing? Because if I'm doing a commercial apple orchard, and I can get a half a bushel of apples per tree, and I can plant my trees three feet apart, I can get more apples per acre than just about any other way I grow apples. That's why. And again, for the commercial orchard, what do I want? I want everything the same. Now, the other limitation on size control. If I take something like an cane apple and put it on a semi-dwarf, you know, something that's you know in the 12-foot range, and I put an cane apple on EMLA 7, which is just another rootstock that gets a little bit bigger, and I take an Arkansas black apple, and I put it on EMLA 7, so they're on the same rootstock, and I, I let it go commercial orchard style. I let it get up to its main, just trim it as, a, as a, the form of the tree, and I let the rootstock set the height of the tree if I do allow that. Guess what? Those trees might be very, very different in, in total height. I don't know much about a cane, but I know that Arkansas black wants to be a big tree no matter what you put it on. So that even with the commercial mentality of these trees are going to be set by the height of the rootstock or the size of the vigor of the rootstock, it's still going to vary apple to apple to apple. I really to learn about stuff like this, please avail yourselves of free tools. Get Rain Tree's free catalog. Go to raintree.com, great nursery, order their catalog. It's free. They'll ship it to your house. And when you turn to the apple page, you'll see a page that shows a whole bunch of apple varieties and a whole bunch of rootstocks they offer, and then trees that you can visually see how big they would be as an adult tree, and you'll see the same rootstock and you'll see four different sized trees it could make. And you'll see the names of the apples that would be that big on that rootstock for that particular tree. So it changes. So the the size limitation, the big takeaway is that it creates a uniform size for apples of the same variety or a uniform size for peaches of the same variety or a uniform size of pears of the same variety. But remember, we're going to put a pear scion or piece of wood on a pear rootstock or a kintz, close relative of the pear. We're not going to put a pear on an apple. It doesn't work. We're going to put a plum on a plum rootstock or any kind of a prunus rootstock we usually work, so a cherry, etc. So that's why you can put cherries and plums sometimes. You see multigrafts on the same tree. All right, that's how that works. But you can't put apple on a plum. You can't put a plum on a on a on a uh, a pear. It doesn't work. You can't put an apple on a pear, and you can't put a pear on an apple. And no, you're not going to graft an apple onto the oak tree in your front yard. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. A lot of people get excited about this when they hear that they're going to do that. So the next function of a rootstock <clears throat> is vigor. So just as we can control size downward, we can put in a really hardy, big, tough, badass rootstock and then take a tree that normally doesn't get that big and give it all the power of those roots 
And there's a constant balance going on there. The tree's trying to grow to support the roots, and the roots are trying to grow to support the tree. And what eventually sets the, the size of an adult tree is they find an equilibrium. This is as much as I can do. This is as much as I can do. Right? Often, though, by going with a more vigorous rootstock, you can get a more healthy tree. Or, if you're me, since the size of the roots can dwarf the ultimate size of the tree by the roots being smaller, if you plant a full-size rootstock into a place like I have with lots of limestone and rock and the roots can only get in so far and get so big, it will end up with a tree that might be the same as the tree that you planted in deep soils on a dwarfing rootstock. There's a natural dwarfing effect. Trees grow to their environment. So one of the advantages of using a rootstock is I can take something like an Octova, which is a full-size apple, or I can grow my own rootstock from a Granny Smith apple seed if I want to. And I'm going to get a full-size root. So it's going to be very, very vigorous And it's going to do the maximum that can be done in my harsh environment. So again, I don't know if the vigor is the right word for that. I think it is. But that's what I mean by it. That by selecting a larger than normal rootstock, you can impart a lot of vigor or resilience to your tree. Which means you can go out and buy the biggest you know, potential tree you can get. And M111 is what's called a semi-dwarf. But it's like 70% of full size if let go. And put that in your backyard and prune it to a seven-foot tree. And what you have is a really strong, vigorous seven-foot tree, if that makes sense. Where if you, if you put it on a smaller rootstock that's designed to kind of stay that size on its own, you still have to prune it, you still have to work on it, maybe a little less pruning, but the tree's not as vigorous. The tree would be happiest if we did what? We planted it from seed. So the more aggressive and larger the rootstock, the closer to that we get, though we can never get back to ground zero putting the seed in place. So those are the functions of the rootstock. Now let's talk about types of grafting. Again, there's a whole shitload. There, you know, there's whip and tongue, there's omega, there's bud chip grafting, there's bench grafting. It's, I wanted to break it down into two main things so you could just separate it in your mind and then you, You can look up and determine the best graft for your needs based on your situation. Okay, But I, I look at it really as what you would call an overgrafting and a nursery grafting. And what I mean by that is if I'm nursery grafting, basically I have the rootstock in my hand. I've bought it, I've grown it, I've dug it up, whatever, and I have the scion, the piece that I'm attaching to it. And I make my cuts, and I put it together, and I put my sealant on it, and I put my tape on it, and then I ship it to you, and you take care of it, or I put it in a pot, and I grow it out for a year, and then I ship it to you, and you take care of it, or I go plant it somewhere, and I train it in place, and it grows, and I leave it there, or I go put it in a, a great big tree grow bed, grow out bed, and I grow it there and train it up for a year, and at the end of a year, or maybe two years, I sell it off or move it somewhere, but... <laughs> One way or another, if I'm nursery grafting, the tree is in a place that it's going to leave and go somewhere else at some place. Okay? If I'm overgrafting, whatever I'm grafting onto is exactly where it's going to be for the rest of its life. And I actually think I'm missing a term here because there's a difference between, let's say I have, and I think overgrafting is really this way I have a tree in place. 
Um, it's grafted onto M111 rootstock. It's an acane apple. And instead of cutting it all the way down to the rootstock, I cut off the acane and I graft an Arkansas black onto it. I think that's technically overgrafting. And I think if I graft onto a rootstock that's planted, I think it's actually called something else, but I'm not sure. I don't care which one it is. I'm using this term, and I'm being full disclosure about not being sure for both types. But when I say overgrafting today, what I mean is it's going on to something that's planted where it's going to live forever until it dies. And there's some real advantages to that type of grafting. So... One of the things I can do with overgrafting, we've talked about, and I'm, I'm talking a lot about apples because I've done a lot of research lately and I know the terms, but an Akatova apple, this Russian apple. So I go out and I buy apple seed, and I want to plant 100 apples along a fence row. So uh, if I had to buy 100 apple trees, at the bottom rock bottom price, 115 uh, bucks, I'm at like $1,500 for 100 apple trees. I can buy... 20,000 Anakatova apple seeds for 20 bucks. And I can stratify, right? So there's, there's different, there's two things that you, you end up having to do with certain seeds. One's called scarify and one's called stratify. Apple seeds don't need scarification, but they do need stratification. And that just basically means they need to be moist and cool, not freezing, but not warm, right? Refrigerator temperature for about 60 days. So I take something like vermiculite. And I get it damp. Not wet where I can squeeze it and water comes out of it, but damp. Where I feel like, oh, that's damp. Put it in a Ziploc baggie. Write a date on it. Put it, you know, I need to do 100 apple trees. Screw it. 500 apple seeds. Go into the bag. Mix it up in the vermiculite. Seal it. Stick it in the refrigerator. 60-ish days later, take that out. Go plant those apple seeds. Instead of planting one apple seed everywhere I want an apple tree, plant five. Four die, don't even care. Five live, whatever one looks the best, that's the one I'm gonna, I'm gonna run with, I'll kill the others. And I can grow those for like a year and a half. And then, that is basically a seed grown tree now. Remember, it's the best we can possibly do. That tree is vigorous, that is, that tree is, that rootstock is a survivor. You know, I put, It and four of its buddies out there, and four of its buddies are dead now, and it's still there. Now I take my scion wood, which I can get you know a little handful of it of any variety for a couple dollars. A lot of times I get it for free, you know. And while it's dormant, I go out and I cut that an octova apple tree at the height that I want to set the graft, and I graft my scion onto that tree in place. Now I get kind of the best of both worlds. I get this incredibly vigorous, grown-in-place rootstock. And I get the variety I'm looking for. I get what I'm looking for in a tree, right? Vigor, size, resiliency. And remember, even though it's a full-size rootstock, and even though that tree could be 28 feet or 32 feet tall, if I let it go now, If I prune it, it could be seven feet tall for the rest of its life. It's all up to me. My pruners have more control over the size of the tree than the root. But how vigorous is a seven-foot tree grown on a full-size rootstock? And here's the thing. You could do that with apple pips out of your refrigerator. You could do it with plum pips out of your refrigerator. You could do it with pear seeds out of your refrigerator. 
And I don't just mean the, stratific the, the stratification. I mean, you could take the pears that you buy in the store, save the pits, put them in a wet paper towel, label the bag, stick them in the refrigerator for 60 days, pull them out, and plant those and graft onto those in a couple of years. Now, when you do the graft, it's like, a, it's like an amputation. It's exactly what it is. It's been reattached. If I cut your arm off with a, a power saw and you went to the ER, they sawed it back, uh, you know, put it back on there. Even if you eventually gained complete control and your arm's more complicated than a tree branch, you wouldn't just like stick it on there and just go back to work, right? You'd have to have it bandaged and taken care of and you'd have to go through physical therapy. When you do this to a tree, generally you want to graft a pretty small piece onto it and it'll bud out and start growing. You have to stake it. You have to protect it. You have to love on it for at least a season because Imagine you graft that on there and it's like really vigorous, you know, rootstock down there, whether it's a plum or a pear, it doesn't matter. And that thing extends up a shoot. And it gets up two, three feet in the first year after you graft it. The wind comes along and puts stress on it. Where's it weakest? Wait, right where you graft it. So that breaks off, your rootstock starts growing back, you've lost everything. So you have to protect what you've grafted. So that's one method of overgrafting. Another method of overgrafting would be exactly what I said I was going to do toward the beginning of the show. I have a peach that died, but the rootstock stayed and came back and made a whole new tree. And the people that lived here didn't know that's what was going on. Made a big tree. I've cut it down. And now I can graft onto that and create a new tree with an old rootstock that's already massive. And that should take off really, really quick. And then I can actually scaffold that and, and create the shape of a of a very small controlled tree on this old hardy rootstock instead of just losing it, starting over from ground zero. I could also do this. I could go out and I could purchase a tree cheap of a particular variety of, let's say, peach. And I could, right where I scaffold it in that area, I could create some suckers and I could graft onto that and I could put two new varieties of peaches. And I could have three varieties of peaches on one tree. But, but now I'm grafting not onto the root. I'm grafting on, I'm overgrafting the existing tree. Which is why I think overgrafting is actually the right term for that. And root grafting might be the right term for the other thing. But either, all I'm talking about when I say overgrafting today is I'm, pu I'm putting the grafted piece onto something that's planted. And it's going to stay there forever. And there's places where this is very, very common. Uh, and it's not just trees. It's like in, in France, They'll do this with, with grapes. They'll go in and plant grape rootstocks. And in that instance, though, it's almost like nursery grafting and overgrafting together. There'll be a guy planting the, 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 the rootstocks, and then a guy comes behind them and grafts them immediately while everything's still dormant. So they're planted. But see, that way, when you go to plant something in places freshly grafted, it hasn't been grown out for a year or two by your nurseryman. That graft is fragile. So every time you move it, every time you jack with it, you're likely to mess it up. So by planting all the rootstocks and then overgrafting and then staking, there's less chance for the graft to be damaged after the fact. So that's, that's where all these things come in. And what Kevin Hauser was talking about when he said he does a, a one-bud bench graft, basically what he does is he buys rootstock, again, M111 rootstock, And he grafts a little tiny piece of scion, just one bud on it, to it, wraps it all up, and that way it can all fit, you know, you can put 20 trees in one little box. But when you get that, 
you have to you have to you have to love on it for a year. You can pot it, you can plant it in place, but it has to be staked, it has to be protected. Because it is not like the tree you bought from a, a big nursery or you buy from Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever, where that graft is a year or two years old by the time you see it. It's brand new, it's fresh. The amputation has just been reattached. But once you learn to do this, it opens up a whole new world for you. You can literally walk into, into your neighbor's backyard that has a peach that you think is really good. And if you have a young peach that still has a place where it could be, you know, grab, you're going to prune it aggressively this year, you could graft that guy's peach right onto your existing tree and have two peaches on one tree. You can go out and plant a whole bunch of, 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 let's say plum seeds and let them grow in place till they're the size you want them and while they're dormant, prune them off and graft them in place. And again, there's, Lots of different grafts. There's grafts that will actually let you take a small piece of scion and put it into a very large tree. There's grafts where you really want the two to be very similar in size. And to get the lowdown on this stuff, you know, the plant propagation course is great. You can learn a lot on YouTube, too. Um, there's all types of tools. There's grafting knives. There's grafting shears. There's, you know, full-scale commercial bench grafters that sell for about a 1000 bucks. But you could sit there and you can do a 1000 a thousand graphs in two hours with them. And it, it, instead of having to be something like, if you're doing it with a knife, you know, a master grafter with a knife can do anything. But a bench grafting tool like that, you could hire someone to come in and teach them in a couple hours what to do. So you could, you could have unskilled labor doing your grafting as a nurseryman with these more advanced tools. It, it's all about what you're trying to do, what the goal is, what's going to happen to it, after you've grafted it, and what have you. But then things get interesting. Let's say you buy a piece of property. Let's say you go out on that property, and there's a lot of young native crab apples already growing on the property. That winter, you get some apple scion wood, you go out there, you top your crab apples, and you start grafting your ass off. Um, each little piece of wood is probably free to a couple cents, You've got maybe, I don't know, a nickel's worth of grafting tape into it and a minute of your time. If you do a thousand grafts and 500 fail, you have a thousand or 500 successful ones. And all of a sudden you've got all this existing rooted material that's already well matured producing all these edible different crazy varieties. If you, you, you've happened to find out about something that you can't find, like right now with cider, I'm finding you know, a hard time getting a lot of different stuff, old varieties. And the sharps are the hardest thing. There's there's four types of cider apples. And the sharps are the ones that I, I'm most efficient in finding sources for. And if I find somebody, let's say, in North Carolina that has a tree, uh, all I need them to do is, is take some cuttings for me at the right time of year and bundle them up and mail them to me. And then I can graft them, and I don't have to come up with a whole new tree. Or I can plant all these rare varieties like I'm going to and either produce or buy rootstocks and then I can sell to a market that's lacking. There's plenty of people out there that want these trees and can't get them. So that's what's like really to me that's exciting about grafting. But don't you know lose out on the advantages of doing things from cuttings and layerings as well because a lot of things will do well for that way. So hopefully this kind of opens you to what this stuff is, not so much exactly how you do it, but what it is and how it works and why you would do it.
And the thing about grafting you need to understand is this is ancient technology. This is thousands of years old. Um, it wasn't widely done, but it was widely known about. Sometimes the people in some societies, the guy that could do this was kind of like, ooh, he's a witch doctor. He can make new plants, right? But the, the truth is it's something that I'm not saying you're going to be good at it, but, but even as an amateur, I can teach you to graft in about five minutes. And then it's up to you to put in your time. They say that, you know, a master is, is simply someone who has 10,000 hours doing something. And, and I actually think that, you know, that's like a grandmaster to me. I think that a person has about 100 hours of experience doing anything, at least if they were taught to do it right and have done it reasonably right for 100 hours, is pretty good at it. I think a person with 1,000 hours, 1,000 hours of anything, is usually what anybody looking at them would consider a master at it. They, they make it, the way you know you've mastered something is when you do it well over and over again and you make it look so easy. Right, You make it look like, so a person watches you do it and says, oh, that's easy, and they go to do it, and it's just like everything's jacked up, nothing works, whatever. You get into a flow with things after a certain amount of practice. And the good news with grafting is you don't need to be working with valid material to practice. You can get a pair of grafting shears or a grafting knife and just cut a whole bunch of scrap wood from scrub trees in your backyard and just sit there and make cuts. Put them together, look at it. You don't necessarily have to wrap it with tape and all. Look at the cut. Does it work? And the biggest thing is, is there cambium contact. Remember I talked about the living layer? The, the living layer from the root has got to touch the living rare, layer of the scion. If you get good cambium contact, your, your percentage of success is going to be high. So once you know what a good graph looks like, if you just want experience, you know, take 10 minutes a day, go out and just prune off some crap off some trees that are just scrub grown somewhere, get out your knife or your shears or whatever you're going to make your preferred method, and just start making cuts and putting them together and looking at it and going, okay, that's... And, and you know, then it's shit material, so you don't care. So you put your graph together, eh, that could have been better this way. Cut the two pieces off, make your two more cuts, stick it together again, look at it. Yeah, that's better. And what starts to happen is muscle... It's just like training to use a firearm... Right, you when when you're when you've gotten proficient with a firearm, you squeeze the trigger. You're thinking to yourself, "High left, I pulled that shot high left," and nine times out of ten, you pull that shot high left. With grafting, with anything, you know, you, you make a cut. You're like, "Ah, I screwed." You already know. I I went too high. I went too hard. I whatever. And you know how to fix it. I I think that that's I think grafting is one of those skills that's really worth learning. And I think it's going to be extremely valuable in the future as we, we move more and more toward a perennial agriculture-based system because it, the truth is you can't afford to plant 10,000 acres of trees. You can't afford to plant 1,000 acres of grafted trees. You really can't. But you can afford to plant 1,000 acres in the seed, and you can afford enough scion to put on top of it, and you or somebody else or someone else can get out there and start doing it. Um, when you get good at grafting, you can graft a tree a minute and you're, you're taking breaks and you're listening to music and you're fast forwarding over the ones you don't want. You're listening to Jack's podcast and you're kind of having a good time until your fingers get tired. Um, and, and again, in production models, you can do it even faster than that. But when you're growing trees out and you gotta, you gotta make money on them and the people you're buying, like the people that are selling you trees for $30 a tree, they're not ripping you off. 
They're trying to make a reasonable profit because they cared for that thing for two and a half years. And, and, and the only way that we can plant these massive plantings is to get lots of people familiar with these techniques and get them going. And when something can be planted from seed, do it from seed. And if something needs to be grafted, well, then graft it. But every time we can put something in place and grow it from seed, and if we need to graft, graft onto that, the resiliency, with certain exceptions for disease resistance, has gone up. Because let me finish with that. There are some of these varieties of rootstock that have been scientifically developed that are extremely resistant to disease. But it's still cheaper. Buy the rootstock. Plant the rootstock. Let it grow a season. Cut it off. Overgraft. Um, and then, you know, you've got a very vigorous rootstock. And it's still cheaper. Buy 10 of those rootstocks and stool them. And make yourself a thousand rootstocks. If you're, you know, if you're doing a backyard or you're doing three acres like me, that's probably not necessary. But if you're trying to do 80 acres of trees, 100 acres of trees, 1,000 acres of trees, you just think about the upfront cost. You know, and you can train an intern to graft pretty quick. And you can bring in interns at a certain time. And once, you know, you can have them graft garbage until, okay, you know what you're doing. Out to the field you go. Start going. And you do a little inspection behind them. You know, and you feed them and you give them some free beer and make them have a good experience. And they get good at what they're doing and they learn. And, you know, you do that for a few years. And next thing you know, you got a 100,000 trees growing somewhere. Well, do a hundred thousand times ten dollars a tree. It's a million dollars in trees. Most of us don't have it. But we can develop the skills that can give us a million dollars in trees. Again, if you want to know more about these individual techniques, check out Nick Ferguson's plant propagation course at permaethos.com. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed today's show. Tomorrow I'm going to have an awesome uh, show for you. It will be Friday, 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 and it will actually be a Friday, Friday show. Next week's going to be a short week. I am headed to California for Permaculture Voices, and I will be out, including, I think, Monday of the following week. I won't be here, but uh, I do have an interview today that will uh, be keyed in for next week, and I'll do the best I can to get you most of a, of a week of shows next week. Uh, again, and if you're coming to Permaculture Voices, I'd love to see you there. I'm actually going to be doing a presentation on building a plant nursery as a business. And uh, all of the more of the business aspects than the techniques. Hope to see many of you folks at Permaculture Voices 2 in uh, California next week. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Believe.